0: recorded live uh hello again and welcome to restoring america it's uh february the 27th 2015 and today i'm going to uh continue reading the grand design exposed and this section is about an alternative view to the american revolution that you probably have never uh, heard of or thought about and i've uh, been trying to explain this basically it has to do with the influence the uh, the intrigues of the jesuits and uh we might say the catholic uh, the catholic influence the jesuit influence uh trying to get a foothold in america and their influence in the american revolution this is a a part of history that has just been uh completely suppressed i it's amazing that you have never run across the Carroll family, uh, the Jesuit Carroll family that was very uh, uh, very influential in early America in, during the time of the Revolution and the Constitution. Uh, Charles Carroll signed the Declaration of Independence. His cousin John Carroll was the very first uh, Archbishop of uh, America, in America, before, really before the Declaration of Independence, uh, they did not really, there was not freedom for the Catholics in America. The colonies, many, most of the colonies, 12 of them anyway, had basically outlawed Catholic, uh, the mass, the the Jesuits, the, uh, ha- being a Catholic, having, uh, a cathedral in America, and after this, it became after the Declaration of Independence, it was became uh, acceptable at least to to do this. It was tolerated, so to speak. So that's uh, we want to uh, just focus on this, and I want to continue reading this chapter about uh, the Carroll family and Freemasonry and the launch of uh, the secret destiny of America, as it is in this book, Chapter 14. Uh, This section is entitled, Taxes, Not Reason, or Not the Reason for the Revolution, starting on page 269 of the book. Anyone within any amount of knowledge of the American Revolution knows, as a matter of fact, that prior to 1763 colonists voiced very few objections to the various revenue-producing English navigation laws. The Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, and even after the Tea Act of 1773, Americans generally did not view themselves as an oppressed people who sought independence because of tyrannical tax measures enacted by England. The revolution was not caused by the English picking the colonists' pockets without their consent, despite the propaganda and rhetoric to that effect at the time. For example, the tea tax of 1773 was made to be very unpopular, but in fact the same tea, which cost the English six shillings per pound, cost Americans only three shillings per pound. Despite the tradition of the oppressive taxation uh, which the the oppressive taxation which the myth of the revolution has spawned says his says one historian the actual tax burden of the colonies was much heavier in the seventeenth century than in the years immediately before the conflict, so the tax burden had been heavier before this immediate period of the, of the Revolutionary War. On a per capita basis, taxes were five times greater in 1698 than they were in 1773. The burden of taxation on the American colonies did not even begin to compare with that which the English in the home country carried. Historians interested in exploring this question have compared the English colonial system with others in operation at the same time, for example, France and Spain, and have concluded that the the British Empire was the least oppressive of all. Also, the infamous Navigation Acts passed in the British Parliament prior to 1763 seldom, if ever, imposed serious economic hardships upon the colonists. Various English laws controlling the trading of commodities such as wool, hats, and iron were at times inconvenient, but it would be a gross under- overstatement to say that they were oppressive. Some colonists felt the pinch of regulation, but the various navigation acts were certainly not in themselves ample cause for revolution. Rather, what should be emphasized is the fact that colonial America benefited and prospered from its privileged place within the British Empire. In return for the slight restrictions imposed by the Navigation Acts, the American colonies had a guaranteed market for many of their goods, both in England and in other British colonies. The Royal Navy bought considerable amounts of naval stores, shipmasts, turpentine, pitch, tar, and hemp for rope, not only to equip the fleet, but also to better protect the colonies from continued threats from colonial trade by France and Spain. Trade of this type helped to make the protective shield of the British Navy strong while also contributing to colonial prosperity. Far from being heavily burdened by their attachments to England, the colonies owed much of their prosperity to the fact that they were junior partners in the world's strongest empire. When the Stamp Act was passed in 1765, that the propagandists made such a ruckus over, it was not something done arbitrarily, but to the British it seemed only logical that the colonies should pay a fair share of the French and Indian war-caused. The enormous debt incurred during the wars was for the colonies' benefit and protection, and now England needed revenue from America, who actually had become wealthy in this period. It was not a hasty measure and was carefully framed to raise revenue from the the colonies by taxing legal and commercial documents without damaging their economies. Actually, the taxes collected in America were designed to meet only one-third of England's total expenditures for protecting the colonies. The act had been read by various colonial agents in London who were given time to consult with their opposite numbers in America. None of them had much against it. Yet when it was passed, the Stamp Act raised an outcry of rage. Consequently, Grenville and the British Ministry were taken by surprise by the reaction of the colonies and by the growth of colonial unity. The striking resemblances between the American and the French revolutions. The sedition that was revealing itself in America had several striking resemblances of what actually was going on in France during the very same time that gives good reason to support the belief that rehearsals for both revolutions was being nurtured and guided by the same unseen forces i would in this traces in his theory is that this goes back to the jesuit uh, universities in france recall the french intellectual philosophies and the networking those so innocent reading and literary societies that were launching a massive propaganda campaign to ferment and condition French minds. Where do you suppose the inspiration came from that sprang up in Boston, Massachusetts, so spontaneously? First among the Freemasonic clubs, then the Caucuses' clubs, the Long Room, and finally to the mobs on the streets, the Sons of Liberty pure propaganda was needed as much in America as in France. Indeed, read any history of the American Revolution and you will find the greatest hurdle the fomenters had to overcome was selling their idea of independence and then uniting the colonists behind it. Even with the most, with the severest intimidation and threats of loss of life, beatings, burnings, burning of property, taunts, browbeating, tar and feathering, and uh, paid organized mob violence, the progress was exasperating and painfully slow. The colonists had to be literally bulldozed and coerced into believing that they were oppressively taxed and to accept the idea that independence before going to war with England, accept the idea of independence before going to war with England. It is true the mobs did not go to the excesses of the French Revolution committing mass massacres, but the tactics used to terrorize people into joining their cause reflects precisely what took place in France a few years later. Propagandists have taught us that the independence from the tax tyranny of England propelled the colonists into their worth worthy revolt historical reality teaches something quite different it's worthy to note that like like in france the sons of liberty clubs of the patriot movement soon covered the colonies within a network with a network of these radical societies which then served as headquarters for the patriot leaders who set the mobs to work ironically they used the very post offices which had been created by the British government to maintain close touch with each other and coordinate resistance to the mother country. Also similar to France, the Patriot movement kept its public well informed with their incendiary pamphlets and newspapers. Of the 37 newspapers in the colonies in 1775, 23 were controlled by the Patriots that incited rebellion. The Sons of Liberty began a reign of terror in which every supporter of British sovereignty became a target to be crushed. They terrified stamp masters out of their wits, wrecked their houses, drank their liquor, and chased them across borders into neighboring provinces. And he gives uh, some support to this. Uh, This is just an alternative that you need to consider. I mean, it's a really alternative view to the American Revolution that has not uh, I'd never heard of, and at least I, uh, it's something that we need to remember or consider. An amazing feature about these mobs was that it was the upper class that organized, encouraged, and directed them. Men like John Hancock of Boston, one of the richest men in America, and the financial age angel of the Massachusetts Patriots. William Livingston, one of the principal lawyers and landowners of New York, worked hand-in-hand hand with the mob leaders of that colony. At the head of the Philadelphia mob marched William Allen, son of Chief Justice of the province, animating and encouraging the lower class. In Charleston, South Carolina, riots were directed by Christopher Gadsden, one of the wealthiest merchants in the province. In Maryland, there was William Paca and Samuel Chase. Samuel Chase has been referred to as a busybody, a restless incendiary, a ringleader of mobs, a foul-mouthed, and inflaming son of discord and faction, a promoter of the lawless excesses of the multitude. With swirling mobs threatening to tear a person from limb to limb, Resistance to any movement, whether you believe in it or not, will become almost non-existent. It becomes kind of obvious when you consider the fact that colonial America was allowed to hash and rehash the tax issues, incite whole populations into riots, and manhandle British officials that it was quite contrary to the tyrannical nation that England was accused of being. That is, that he allowed the England allowed all of this to go on without uh, stopping it or nipping it in the bud. Her leniency and patience with the colonists showed just the opposite. England had every right, and certainly the power, had she chosen to do so, to easily have suppressed the dissidents right from the beginning. It makes one almost smile inside in a pathetic sort of way to know that This nation of ours in colonial times rose up in revolt, claiming to cast off a tax-oppressive tyrant when today Americans are being taxed in some way or another close to 50% of their incomes without any uh, resistance, without any uh, real strong cry against it. Would you have any doubt as to how benevolent the IRS would handle such a tax revolt today? So, without uh, clear understanding of how to how to get out of paying your taxes, uh, the the IRS will come down hard on you. Uh, there's a you should study a man by the name of uh, Irving Irwin Schiff, uh, the the father of Peter Schiff of well-known libertarian uh, today, who has been in prison uh, for years and years because of his uh, refusal to pay is his, uh, the IRS uh, his income taxes, and uh, many have many have successfully uh, learned to to do this. The income taxes is just a voluntary tax. This is what it says in their own codes, but most of us are afraid. Uh, to resist the IRS this is the point in in his uh, in the book here Freemasonry that utopian fraternity was turning France upside down and had now come to British America to wreak havoc in the colonies remember it had only been 20 years since 1745 when the French had tried unsuccessfully to launch an invasion of England to place a Catholic monarch on the English throne again, just 1745. So it's right, This still raw and fresh in people's uh, minds, memories. Grudges were still freshly being carried by much of the gentry whose grandfathers had been exiled in America, who had sided with the Stuart King, and all were not Catholics. They were Anglican. Many were Anglican, but some Catholic. These men fit in well with Freemasonry's goals. If they if they could now have a part in humiliating England by separating the colonies from her. So there were uh, uh, Anglican and Catholic sympathizers who had come to America. So he's saying that there were some that were very... Uh, had bitterness toward the English toward the English rulers these men fit in well with freemasonry's goals if they could now have a part in humiliating england by separating the colonies from her behind every political club during the revolutionary period stood freemasonry instilling its ideology into the mainstream of society, its ideology of revolution. The names of prominent men who were Freemasons were also names found quite often overlapping in the other political clubs. As one Masonic historian has written, Freemasonry has exercised a greater influence upon the establishment and development of this American government than any other single institution. Neither general historians nor the members of the fraternity since the days of the constitutional conventions have realized how much the United States of America owes to Freemasonry and how great a part it played in the birth of the nation and the establishment of the landmarks of that civilization. I again refer you to uh, some documentaries by uh, Christian J. Pinto. You can find these at Amazon or uh, on on uh, On the internet, uh, usually you can see them for free if you look enough so what but what really is enlightening is the influence the Brotherhood of Freemasonry could have on the British government itself and numerous of its military commanders favoring the Amer- the american Revolution the the rebellion taking place in the colonies. Being supported in many English high places gave the revolutionary leaders encouragement in their boldness and defiance. So he's saying that even among the British, there was a uh, sympathy for the American Revolution. They were favoring even in the military, the British military. This is something that uh, is a very interesting uh, proposition. Freemasonry in the British military. At the same time Freemasonry was spreading through the colonies, during the years of 1733, this is back in 1733 when Freemasonry was being introduced in America, there was occurring another development which was to have a profound effect on American history. Since 1732, Freemasonry had been also spreading through the British Army in the form of regimental field lodges. Of particular significance is the fact that these lodges were not chartered by the Grand Lodge of England, but by the Irish Grand Lodge, which offered the higher degrees, the Scottish Rites. These are the more radical degrees. Moreover, these lodges were chartered prior to 1745. But when the higher degrees first began to be purged of their Jacobite orientation, that is, their, they moved to get a Catholic back on the throne of England. So the Catholics are using Freemasonry. This is the theory he's presenting in, in this, uh, this book, that the Catholics, the Jesuits, are behind Freemasonry and controlling, manipulating things through Freemasonry to obtain their goals uh, to bring Catholics, the Catholic Church, the Pope, back into power wherever they're working. At the same time, of course, Freemasonry had also established itself in the upper echelons of military command and administration and included some of the most prominent figures of the day. For example, one such man was the future Lord Geoffrey Amherst, who would emerge as perhaps the single most important British commander of the age. To give you a little background of the Masonic background of these men, Amherst's sponsor, the man who paid for his commission, was a family friend, Lionel Sackville, first Duke of Dorset. Sackville had two sons. The elder, Charles, Earl of Middlesex, founded a Freemasonic lodge in Florence in 1733. Sackville's younger son, George, was equally active in Freemasonic affairs. By 1746, he was Colonel of the 20th Foot and took a particular interest in the regiment's field lodge, even becoming its official master. One of his two wardens was Lieutenant Colonel Edward Cornwallis, who in 1750 was made governor of Nova Scotia and founded the first lodge there. Among Cornwallis's subordinates was the young Captain James Wolfe, who had already established a reputation for, for brilliance. Uh, subsequently, of course, working in close concert with Amherst, Wolfe was to play a decisive role in the course of North American history. Pay close attention to this. George Sackville himself, in the meantime, had become, in, by 1751, Grand Master of Irish Grand Lodge. Eight years later, during the Seven Years' War, also uh, uh, called the uh, French-Indian War, he was to be charged with cowardice at the Battle of Minden, court-martial, and dismissed from service. His friendship with King George III, however, enabled him to retain his status in governmental quarters. By 1775, under the title of Lord Germain, he was Colonel or colonial secretary. That is, in charge he was kind of secretary of state of colonial affairs. It was in this capacity that he served throughout the American War for Independence. Is it beginning to come together just a bit? These are uh, very strong Freemasons. Events were soon to bring American Freemasonry and that of the British Army together on a hitherto unprecedented scale. Substantial contingents of British regulars, Both officers and men were soon to be working in close concert with the colonists, training them in military procedures and operations, and in the process, transmitting other things as well, not the least, the corpus of higher degree, formerly Jacobite Freemasonry. This was anti-English, the anti-Protestant England uh, uh, king. And this Freemasonry was to provide an ideal conduit for the kind of harmonious and sympathetic relationship and sense of fraternity that tends generally to develop among comrades-in-arms. It became an effective means for Catholic-modified Freemasonry to be unwittingly assimilated by Protestant English colonists it became an effective means for Catholic modified Freemasonry to be unwittingly assimilated by Protestant English colonists. So this was their their means of infiltrating the colonies. Between 1745 and 1753, the English population of North America had swollen dramatically dramatically. Adding to those numbers were exiled or refugee Jacobites, people who were Catholic, Catholics or certainly Catholic sympathizers. Organization, communication, and trade developed rapidly, and thoughts of westward expansion began to, to be pressed. When colonists from Virginia began moving into the Ohio Valley, a contingent of colonial militia under the young George Washington was dispatched into the region to build a fort against French hostilities who were strongly opposed to English advancements. Full-scale fighting broke out, which prompted in April 1755 to send a British column, both regulars and colonial militia, under General Edward Braddock to the area. They were ambushed by French troops and their Indian allies, and the column was virtually annihilated. General Braddock was fatally wounded, and George Washington, his aide-de-camp, barely escaped with his life. The next year in 17, in 1756 the Seven Years' War erupted in Europe, the Seven Years' Wars in Europe between Europe and France, uh, England and France. But the British Army's principal theater of activity was to be in North, North America which became the French and Indian War. The war began with numerous English defeats and setbacks. One after another, British forts throughout what is now upstate New York were lost. But in England, there began a massive reshuffling of officers in both the Army and the Royal Navy to turn things around. Old-fashioned officers were sacked, demoted, or passed over and commands were handed out at, uh, to a host of younger, more dynamic, more flexible, more innovative men. In North America, the most important of these was, were James Wolfe, then aged 31, and Jeffrey Amherst, 10 years older, who was made major general and appointed commander-in-chief. Among Wolfe's and Amherst's most prominent subordinates were Thomas de la Desagu- Guillier, son of distinguished Freemason of, a, of the distinguished Freemason, and William Howe, who became a central figure in the American War for Independence. As this is back during the French Indian War, as Commander in Chief Amherst introduced new techniques and tactics to the army, he adopted innovations that were was suited for guerrilla operations. Light infantry designed specifically for scouting and skirmishing, clad in dark brown skirtless coats. Some troops were even dressed in Indian apparel. A number of colonial officers learned their trade from Amherst, officers who would later rise to prominence during the American War for Independence. It was from Amherst that such men as Charles Lee, Israel Putnam, Ethan Allen, Benedict Arnold, and Philip John Schuller acquired both the discipline of the professional soldier and the tactics specifically adapted to warfare in North America. And while Washington had by then resigned his commission, he too knew and was profoundly influenced by Amherst. In July 1758, Amherst and his entourage of gifted young officers began to recapture those forts that were initially lost during the war. This, if you want to get a feel for this period, watch uh, The Last of the Mohicans movie. Each previous loss was now turned into victories. In September 1759, Wolfe with William Howe, leading the advanced column, accomplished one of the most audacious feats in military history, proceeding up the St. Lawrence by ship, then scaling the sheer cliffs of the heights of Abraham outside the citadel of Quebec with 4,000 troops. In the battle that ensued, both Wolfe and the French commander, the Marquis de Montcalm, died. But the tide had now been turned. The Marquis de Montcalm is in is in uh, Last of the Mohicans in the movie. And um, this would be after that movie, The Last of the Mohicans. But that movie gives you an idea of of what was going on and the battle, the type of uh, warfare that was going on at the time. Uh, uh, Operations continued for another year, but in 1760, Montreal, besieged by Amherst and William Howe, capitulated, and France ceded her North American colonies to Britain. So Britain won. British, the British won the French-Indian War, which was French, which was Catholic. That's the one thing we forget, that the French were primarily Catholics. What must be emphasized here is that the, influence, the influx of British regulars into North America brought with it an influx flux of Freemasonry, particularly the kind of Catholic-modified higher-degree Freemasonry warranted by Irish Grand Lodge. Of the 19 line regiments under Amherst's command, no fewer than 13 had practicing field lodges. There is quite a list of commanders who were Freemasons. For example, Lieutenant Colonel John Young, who served under Amherst, had as early as 1736 been appointed Deputy Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Scotland. In 1757, he had become... Provincial Grand Master for all Scottish lodges in America and the West Indies. In 1761, Young was succeed, succeeded in the military by Lieutenant Colonel, later to become Major General Augustine Prevost. In the same year, Prevost became Grand Master of all lodges in the British Army, warranted by another Freemasonic body. Take note: the Ancient and Accepted Scottish Rite. In 1756, one colonel, Richard Gridley, was authorized to congregate all free and accepted masons in the expedition against Fort Crown Point, which was later conquered by Amherst, and formed them into one or more lodges. When Louisbourg fell in 1758, Gridley formed another lodge there. In November 1759, two months after Wolfe's capture of Quebec, The six field lodges of the troops occupying the citadel convened a meeting. It was decided that since there were so many lodges in the the Quebec garrison, they should form themselves into a grand lodge and elect a grand master. Accordingly, Lieutenant John Gwinnett was elected grand master of the province of Quebec. He was succeeded a year later by Colonel Simon Fraser, who was the son of Lord Lovett Lovet, and, as a prominent Jacobite, uh, very cat, probably Catholic, had taken a major part in the 1745 rebellion, was captured and executed. In 1761, Simon Fraser was succeeded as Quebec's provincial grandmaster by Thomas Spann of the 47th Foot. Span was followed in 1762 by Captain Milbourne West of the same regiment, and West in 1764 became provincial grandmaster for the whole of Canada. So, what this is showing is that uh, the Masonic influence in the British Army was very strong at this time. <coughs> I'm going to stop the reading right now. Uh, This is uh, from The Grand Design Exposed by John Daniel, An Alternative View of the American Revolution. This has been Part 3, and I'll be back uh, soon with Part 4. Thank you very much.